Welcome to the Daily Writer Podcast, where we bring you tips and inspiration each day to help you build habits for writing success. For more resources, including your free Daily Writer Starter Kit, visit dailywriterlife.com. I've said it many times before, and I'm sure I'll continue to say it. One of the huge benefits of hosting a podcast is the opportunity to have conversations with amazing people. Today's episode is no exception because I was able to talk to a singer-songwriter whose music I have admired for a long time. Her name is Cindy Morgan, and in addition to being an amazing musician, she's also an author who weaves her incredible gift of storytelling into everything that she does. Cindy is a two-time Grammy nominee, a 13-time Dove Award winner, and a recipient of the prestigious Songwriter of the Year trophy. She has 21 number one radio hits to her credit, and has written songs for notable artists including Vince Gill, India Ari, Rascal Flatts, Ricky Skaggs, Amy Grant, Glenn Campbell, Mandisa, Natalie Grant, Michael W. Smith, Point of Grace, Sandra McCracken, and many others. In fact, I basically cut this list in half. This is from her official bio. She's written songs for so many people I couldn't include them all in this uh, bio here on this podcast. As you can see, she's really talented. She pretty much knows everybody, and she's worked with just about everybody in the music industry, and she's really an amazing person. Now, in addition to all this, in 2017, Cindy's song, Bird in a Cage, was performed by Robert Redford and Sasha Lazard in the movie Blind, starring Alec Baldwin and Demi Moore. She's also authored three books, Barefoot on Barbed Wire, Dance Meet Daddy, and her memoir, How Could I Ask for More? In addition to being a co-creator of the charitable Hymns for Hunger Tour, which has raised awareness and resources for hunger relief organizations across the globe. Now, I just realized there was actually a mistake in what I just said. She's actually authored four books because we're going to talk about that fourth book here on this podcast today. Her brand new novel, which just released yesterday, is called The Year of Jubilee, and she was kind enough to come on the podcast and share about her storytelling process. Cindy and I talk about her process of writing the novel, her publishing strategy, where to begin and end a novel, the unique soundtrack she developed for her novel, and a lot more. This was a really wide-ranging conversation, and no matter what type of writing that you do, you're going to come away with some amazing insights into the storytelling and creative process. Now, before I get to the conversation, though, I want to mention, make sure and grab Cindy's new book. It's called The Year of Jubilee, and there is a link in the show notes. Make sure and grab that, and also check out her website, which is cindymorganmusic.com. All right, let's get to the conversation with the amazing Cindy Morgan. Cindy, it is a massive honor to have you on the Daily Writer podcast. As I mentioned before I hit record, I've been listening to your music literally for decades. I'm sure you hear this all the time whenever that's been the case with somebody and then they get to talk with you and get to meet you. But it really is an honor. I I told my wife mm-hmm. yesterday we were doing this interview and I was like, I can talk to Cindy Morgan. She was like, oh, that is so cool. So it is really cool. And thanks for taking the, the time to be a guest today. Oh, man. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to talk to you. And I was we were talking a minute ago about how I've just enjoyed your book, um, The Faith of Elvis. And that's been just so sweet to to hear the other side of that story from from siblings, from his brothers. And I, I just love yeah. that. So um, I'm I am i really have just enjoyed that book. So I I think that's kind of what brought us together. the song when I released the song The Day Elvis Died, and then you mm-hmm. Yes. You reached out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just thought that that was such a beautiful song for a lot of different reasons. But I I saw that and I thought, man, 
I just I should just send her a copy of my book. Maybe she'll reply to a random message that this guy sends from the internet. And lo and behold, you did. So here we are. <laughs> well, I try and pay attention to those because you know it's it's amazing through the years just getting because those messages come straight to me. And um, so, and it takes me a minute sometimes to get to them, but, but uh, I've always just loved, uh, you know, hearing the stories from people about how something that I, you know, released maybe connected to them in a personal way. So, and here we are, you know, like I got to read your amazing book and then we're, we're having this interview. So I'm, I'm grateful when people reach out. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dive in about your book. Because I've been diving into this uh, over the last week or so, and I have a lot of questions. Um, but first of all, I just want to say thank you for writing a really beautiful novel. A lot of novels, they tell a great story, but they're not beautifully written. And obviously, as a songwriter and as a, an artist, you have a way with words that is so, it's so obvious, even from like the first page. So I just, I, I want to let you know, I appreciate the fact that this book is so carefully crafted from an artistic perspective. I just think it's, it's a beautiful story and, and thanks for putting the time into this. Oh man. Thank you, Kent. Thank you. You know, I read, I read a book by Stephen King, Stephen King on writing. You've probably read it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when people ask him why he wrote that book, he said that of all the books about novel writing, people rarely talked about the language and how important the language of a book is. And I remember this one thing he said where he said, I tend to leave the parts out that people skip, <laughs> which I thought was so awesome. But so I, I appreciate that. I'm, I mean, I think being a songwriter, being a professional songwriter for almost 30 years um, has probably helped me in that way. In that um, I like to say it's like the 350, 350 rule. And, you know, in the music business, if you're writing a song, especially for radio, they would like for you to deliver that song in about three minutes and 50 seconds, under four minutes. Uh, whereas this novel is actually 349 pages long. So it's, let's say 350, it's 350 I didn't pages. Know that. It is, which I didn't, I didn't plan that, but I just think that our, the irony of the 350, 350 for me. But, you know, if you're going to take somebody on an entire journey through, uh, you know, a, a journey in a song in less than four minutes, then every word has to really pack a punch and economy of words, as, they, as we, we say, you know, in, the, in songwriting. Um, and so I think in a way, the, just years and years of, of lyric writing helped me to try and I mean but even still oh my gosh I mean you know every draft I would just you know hit myself over the head and go why did you that line is terrible you know and rewrite it and you know it's like you could just rewrite till your brain falls out it'll just yeah. never be good enough but I know you know that as a writer but anyway so thank you thank you for that absolutely and I just I just looked as you were talking. It is 349 pages. Exactly. <laughs> wow, that's that is such an irony. I love Kinda that. Yeah, no. Let me back up just a bit and and ask you at this point in your life with so much success behind you, why a novel now? 
you've written nonfiction books before. Obviously, you've had a lot of success in the world of music. A lot of people kind of stay in one lane through their whole lives, but I love how you have, you just keep adding these other new things to what you're doing as an artist. So why a novel? What was it about writing a story that that you felt like such a compelling thing to do that you wanted to invest the time and resources into this particular kind of art form? Well, I, 17, let me see here. So right here, this is the, this is the photograph of my brother, um, Samuel. Hmm. Um, he's holding, he's holding his pet rooster Rojo. The one that's in the book. That's the one. Yeah. So I, this has been sitting on my, um, my bookshelf for a long, long time, but, um, 17 years ago, I could not shake uh, this memory, which was my first memory as a child. And, you know, the, the science says that first memories can impact your life if they are um, something of gravity. And so my very first memory was uh, holding Rojo up to the hospital window so that Isaac could see him and me one more time and before he died. And I think that just looking in at him in the hospital bed as a three and a half year old, that moment, um, I just, you know, I, I didn't know. I just, there was something about it that wouldn't let me go. And even, um, you know, the process of watching you know, and being so young, but, Isaac and I, he was a year and a half older than me. Sorry, I said Isaac, didn't I? I meant Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> it all kind of weaves together. The, yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a problem with the job. But anyway, but but I but Samuel and I were playmates, you know, because we were so close in age. But I was so young that I don't remember us playing together, even though there are all these pictures of us playing together. But that's what I remember. And and just my parents and what they went through in the loss of him. And um and my mom, you know, just going through so much and um bringing in some faith healers that did not were not that, that made promises they couldn't keep, you know, and that only God can keep, right? And um, and so I think that growing up under the umbrella of a child who died completely changed the way I saw the world and, and certainly the way my parents saw the world. And I think it's why I became a writer. And so that moment would never leave me alone. And um, and I and I just didn't know what to do with it. And so my friend, Wayne Kirkpatrick, you probably know Wayne. Um, he's just a, he's, he's a hero of mine. He's, he's been a mentor of mine for, you know, almost 20 years. And, um, but he had written, he's written two amazing novels that I've read that have never been published. Um, and so I see your face there. You're like, uh, wait, wait, yeah, wait, you're okay. like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, cause Wayne, of course, who will, you should, tell your audience we'll tell your audience like so he he's produced he produced and wrote all the songs on those amazing susan ashton records and I then he those. also 
Oh, so Truly. good. Truly. Oh my gosh. Just so amazing. And then he also developed and produced the first several little big town records and then went on to become this like amazing artisan and has sold all of these like artisan pieces of like clocks and guitars. I mean, he's just such a, he's such a Renaissance man. And then he and his brother, Carrie, um, wrote, uh, something rotten which is a musical mm-hmm. based on on shakespeare and it was nominated for 17 tonys and then they also adapted um the uh, the movie mrs doubtfire for broadway and i mean i didn't know that yes and so anyway so he is just such a creative giant and so i i went to him we were writing we write all the time and i just said hey I've got this thing in my head that I can't get out of it. And I said, I I think it's a novel, but I don't know. And he said, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And the irony is that at that point I was married to Sigmund Brown, who's a novelist. He's a prolific novelist, but you know how it is. It's like, you you don't want to, I just kind of wanted to keep it to myself and, and, you know, and, um, so Wayne said, um, just write what you see. Just write what you see. Don't worry about anything else. Just write everything you see. And that's what I did. And as I did that, what I realized was that in order to really tell a story that felt complete, I had to create a world. Um, and, you know, sometimes people believe that fiction is really, even though fiction is not true, but we write fiction to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, from the very beginning, it was a work of fiction. It was not a memoir, even though I've included the story of Samuel in, in, in one of my mem- memoirs, but and um, how I asked for more. That's a memoir I did a few years ago the story of him is, is in there, but, but um, I don't know. I, it just was, it always had to be a work of fiction because I think I needed that world to be created, to work through um, the complexities of what happens to a family who, who the worst possible things ha- thing happens, which is, I think the death of a child. Um, yeah. Wow, there's so many. Our mind is just swirling with questions about, <laughs> about 50, 50 things right now. Um, and I guess as a as somebody who works with writers a lot, and of course I do this podcast, and I'm a ghostwriter, and so my world is kind of books all the time, you know, twenty four seven. And when it comes to novels, especially because I've never written a novel, I'm super curious how that process worked for you. In terms of, did you sit down and just do a whole draft over time and then you go back and you know let's say you want something to happen in the later part of the story then do you have to find a way to bake that into an earlier chapter and what was kind of your process for building building this novel from the ground up and then how did you go back and and shape it into what you really wanted it to be yeah (laughs) oh my gosh maybe that's the million dollar question let me just tell you um so the magic of they call them panthers or plotters, right? So you write mm-hmm. by the seat of your pants or you plot. Well, 
for me, I had to write it by the seat of my pants because because if I would have tried to be a plotter, then I think that there are so many things that I would not have discovered along the mm-hmm. way. And so, but the, re, but the, what happens when you are a pantser, when you write by the seat of your pants is that that means you're going to have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. It's just, it's so the, the, the arc that you're holding is the 21st draft, 10 years, 21 drafts. 10 years. Oh my God. Yes. 17 years since I wrote that first, the prologue, which has changed almost not at all. But, but I, but like I, I, I didn't really, I remember when I first started 17 years ago and I wrote the prologue and then I wrote a few scenes, but then I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't think this is right. I don't even know where those pages are, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then I stopped. Then I stopped. But then about 10 years ago, I started again. And I worked with a couple editors in Nashville that kind of tried, I kind of tried to talk through, here's what I think could happen. And, and I, and so I wrote kind of a first draft, um, which was much shorter and, um, and about, you know, a third of it stayed. In in from that draft, and so I think that as I and then I and then I worked with a second editor uh, who helped me a little bit more, um, but but then I was recommended to uh, to a, a serious hardcore editor in New York, Catherine Clavarius, um, who was a fiction editor for Simon and Schuster in New York, and let me just say. Uh, that's uh, the, 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 uh, the, the bar just got raised. And so <laughs> she, she, she read what was probably my fifth draft. And, um, and so then, I mean, and it's, it's like the onion. So she said, okay, let's have a conversation about what works and what doesn't work. And so we talked about the world you know, of, and at that point, the novel was called Rojo. Um, as a matter of fact, somewhere here in the house, I have my first draft of Rojo typed wow. out with a cover on it. Um, anyway, but, but we just started talking about that title and how, because it, it seemed like it, it was the right title at the time. But then, as I, but then she said, "Okay, let's address the big issues." And then I addressed the big issues. And then she said, "Okay, now let's move in." And then I figured out, I want this town to be a character in the book. I want the town to be a part of of the story. You know, like Jaber Crow and uh, Portsmouth. Oh, I'm saying it wrong, Portsmouth. But anyway, in the um, Wendell Berry's novel, um, you know, the town is a character in the novel, or even like the Andy Griffith show, Mayberry. Mayberry is mm-hmm. a character in that story. Absolutely. And so I yeah, I wanted Jubilee. And then my mother is a is a um is, has attended a messianic congregation for years and there's a lot of Jewish history in our in our mm-hmm. roots. And my mom always talked about the year of Jubilee, always talking about it. And um, it probably wasn't until 
um, I was like seven drafts in that I was like, Oh, I, I want this to be, I want this to be in a part of history where that title where Jubilee will really mean something. I and mean, then of course, what else could there be but 1963, which was the biggest year for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that, um, the plotting of it, you know, when you ask that question about if you want to put this in the, you know, in the, the third act, then, you know, obviously it's like you have to have the setup, the foreshadowing of that and the first act and, and uh, all things that I didn't know. I read lots of books on novel writing. I watched documentaries about it. And, but really I learned from Catherine. Catherine really taught me so much. And, um, and and so she's amazing and really i just have i really owe it to her because without her guidance i don't this book would not have have happened she was just so patient with me but um yeah but i, I think that in terms of the plot i started really digging into because i like books with a plot i love narrative books and that i mean to kill a mockingbird is obviously i mean that's that's the OG. That's my favorite novel. Yes. Um, I love Jaber Crow because of its narrative, beautiful style. Now, it's not really a plot-driven book at all. It's really a book about nothing happening, but how everything happens in the nothingness of life. And it's just so beautifully written. The language is so amazing. And it's just so heartbreaking. Um, but honestly, I also love John Grisham books. And so I love, I love John Grisham books, especially the early ones, like A Time to Kill and, and even Sycamore Row, which is, is a, is a return, you know, to the, the small town that he, he has three or four novels that happened in that same small town, which I, I love that. And then, but anyway, but I love that he always had a plot. Um, and it was clean and you didn't have to worry about, you know, if you're going to get kind of blown away by a scene that you weren't ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, now I felt like he was always, um, he was never gratuitous when there was like a sex scene or something like that. It just always felt like he, he kind of kept it PG for the most part. And I, and, and I appreciated that. And so I thought, I really want to put something in this novel that gives the reader at the end a oh you know i mean i'm not sure if it's a aha but it's a oh i didn't see that coming hmm. you know and um, cuz i love it when that happens i love it when um when i've got one you you go oh i didn't see that oh they got me like have you read the pa- the, the silent patient no I, I think i've heard of it though oh my goodness the silent patient and um uh, oh, well, it's okay. It's a book called The Silent Patient. He has two books out. Another one is called um, The Maidens, The Maidens and the Silent Patient. Those books, those the works of fiction, oh my goodness. There is like the end of those is like, what? You know, I just love it when it, when you, you know, you just, there are so many great red herrings and you never see it coming. So I, I did want something like that to happen. So I had to go back 
to the first act and you have to you have to kind of thread that all the way through which means you have to throw out all this stuff and all these characters and you know kill your babies as they say <laughs> kill your darlings i'd rather say that <laughs> how did you keep your your persistence going through this process not not probably knowing when it would be published how all that would come about who the publisher would be you know, you're you're talking a years long process here. How do you, as a writer, mm-hmm. keep invested in this thing, and at and at some point, just not throw it all away and just go, "This is too hard. It's taking too long. Is it even worth it?" What was it about this project that just kept you plodding along, and all those hours, those hundreds of hours, of just waiting through and doing the work? I think. Um, I mean, I think this book especially. Well, first of all, I'm a, it's a bit of my personality type. You know, I, if I start a book, I'm going to finish it. I mean, if I'm reading a book, I am going to finish mm-hmm. that book. And, you know, honestly, that's one of the things that when I was talking to Wayne Kirkpatrick about the creative process, and he said, it's not the projects you start, it's the projects you finish. And, you know, he, and one of the rules of thumb that he adheres to uh, in the creative process is don't start something that you don't think you can finish. And because I think there's so much the the ideas. Oh my goodness. I love ideas. I love, I love ideas. I love cooking up new ideas, but how many ideas can you actually see all the way through? And so I, um, and there are lots and lots of songs that I've started that I haven't finished, but I, but I, I think I do try and finish most of them if, if they seem worth finishing. And so for me, this book, obviously it's very meaningful on a personal level mm-hmm. for me, for my family, not just for me. I mean, I think I wrote this book as much for my family as I did for myself. And I wrote it for Samuel. I mean, I wrote it for his memory um, in that someone, like I think, I think he left such a mark on my family with his, with his very short years um, and I, I think, I think I just couldn't let, it, it would not let me go. It mm. wouldn't let me go. And so I just kept going. I mean, 10 years and 21 drafts is a long time, but a long time, you know, to do it around. And, and of course I was so busy, you know, I was touring and writing full time and a mother of two. And, you know, a lot of things happened in, in those years, like, I got divorced and now I'm a single mother and my kids are, you know, going to college. I mean, all of these things that even I think about Catherine, how my editor, how she, our work, the evolution of that book through my life and what happened all along the way. Um, And I I got, and I also got remarried. (laughs) So anyway, I don't know, but um, it just wouldn't let me go. We'll get right back to the conversation in just a minute. But first, a word from today's sponsor, Vellum. As a writer, you not only want to write great books, you also want them to look professionally formatted and give your reader a great experience. 
That's why for years, my go-to choice for book formatting software has been Vellum. Vellum gives you the power to build, style, and preview your book and have more fun than you ever thought possible while doing it. Vellum is the go-to choice for Mac users who care about creating beautiful eBooks and print books and want to save tons of time in the process. Best of all, you can download Vellum and play with your book's formatting to your heart's content. You only have to purchase when you're ready to publish. And when you do, Vellum can create eBooks for every platform. To download Vellum for free, visit tryvellum.com daily. Now let's get back to the conversation with Cindy Morgan. What was it about your, I feel like this is a really big and complicated question, but maybe it's really not. What was it about your experience in the music field? So you've done music a long time. You've had a lot of success with it. You, you know probably everybody in Nashville and, and beyond. What was it about your experience in that field that helped you when it came to writing this novel? Mm-hmm. Or on the flip side, was it such a different, different experience that were there some points where you thought, okay, this is a really, really totally new kind of thing that, that maybe isn't at all related to the process of creating music and recording and touring? I'm curious yeah. what the relationship between those two things is. Oh, I, I think that's a great question. I think there's a definite relationship for me. Um, and a lot of uh, writing scenarios that I've been in, I've been called in to be the lyricist, even though I write both music and lyrics. But um, but I get called in a lot to be the fundamental lyricist um, because sometimes it's for, for younger artists who haven't kind of figured out how to kind of give voice to their thoughts. And one of the things that I learned from one of the masters, Tom Douglas, who's, you know, the Steinbeck of country music, written uh, Little Rock, The House That Built Me, um, Take the Drunk Girl Home, Make Him Wait. I mean, there's so many God's Will, so many amazing songs he's written. And he and I have, have written uh, quite a bit. And he, I remember him saying, a lyric should read like a story. You should be able, even if it's not a story style lyric, but you should be able to start at the top of that verse and read and like, you know, the verse, which is like tells you where you are and what the furniture is in the room. And then that pre-chorus, which is the connecting point between the verse and then the chorus, it should all just feel like you could read it. And it's so cohesive. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've tried to do that in lyric writing, especially in the last 10 years. And that it's like it getting that bird's eye view as a lyricist takes a long time. And I think I've really only had that for the last 10 years where I can zoom out and I can look down on the lyric and, and see what's missing and see where the holes are. Um, And I think that helped me in terms of like the plot and uh, making, okay, that, you know, this can't happen to this person by, there can be no coincidences because, because coincidences equals bad writing. Hmm. So, so why would this happen? Why would this person, uh, experience that or why would this person react to this person in this way what is their history you know so it's really the research of understanding human 
um, um, our, our kind of how things make us feel or why we react in certain ways or what motivators we have, you know, the whole motivation, what motivates writers. I mean, that's, you, you have to do your due diligence in that. And I think I did that. I tried to do that in songwriting, you know, and not all songwriters do that in that, I've been in a lot of rooms where you'll have great conversations about a song and like, why, you know, why would this person, so say you're writing a song about a of someone who's like in a breakup. Okay. Well, why'd they break up? Well, hmm. what are the details of the breakup? Well, what started it? You know, were they once in love? Where did they get married? You know, what did they wear? Like all of these details that are world building in a song right? That's the, they to call it the furniture in country music. What is the furniture in the room that makes that, that verse feel like I can see it, you know? Do you know Sufjan Stevens? Do you the know name that sounds writer? really, really familiar. Yeah, you probably would know. He's, he's pretty avant-garde and like in kind of underground, you know, of uh, tastemaker circles of songwriters he's a darling but um he wrote this record years ago called illinois he was doing these records based on um states and and interesting things that happened in certain states and he was going to do one for every state but he didn't he did like three or four but his his record illinois he has this song called Wayne Gacy, and it's about Wayne Gacy Jr., who was one of the most infamous serial killers mm-hmm. in, um, in Illinois. And so the opening line is, his father was a drinker and his mother cried in bed. Hmm. I mean, it's like, whoa. That's a great line. Oh, my goodness. Folding John Wayne's T-shirt when the swing set hit his head. You know, that's the first verse. I mean, it's just like, so it, he just packs so much into those three lines. And, um, but you don't get those lines without doing your homework, without doing research. And so I think research is, is huge in both songwriting and in, in novel writing. Okay, I have, a, I have a granular songwriting question. I've always wondered about this. Obviously, you, you're probably somebody who knows the answer. When you are, when I'm looking at songwriting credits, okay, remember back in the days when you used to have cassettes and CDs and you could see who all the songwriters were. You can't see that on Spotify or anything, not that I know of. But when you see who gets credited as the songwriters, how does that work? Because if you have, let's say, five people in a room and somebody comes and they have written 80% of the song, but yet some guy over here pipes in with one or two words or maybe just one chord change. Does everybody still get equal credit as the songwriters or how is that divvied up or, or how do you assign who actually is listed as the songwriters? I've always been well, curious about that. Yeah. It do, it's such a case by case situation. So traditionally, um, you know, if, if, if you show up for a songwriter, songwriting appointment and there are three people on the right that means no matter what happens we're looking at thirds 33 and third for everybody now if you show up and an artist 
who is the one of the three writers, has showed up and they have a lot of the song developed. Then sometimes the other two writers will say, hey, you should get 50%. We'll take 25, 25. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it's that's, but some writers won't do that. I am like, I'm a bit of a, a stickler for if I don't believe, if someone shows up and they've done the work, I don't want to take what I don't feel like, you know, I earned. And if I didn't earn it, I don't want to take it. And then, um, like for instance, I, um, I had a, a writing appointment with an artist a couple weeks ago and um, we were talking about an idea and she threw out an idea of a title or of a, for a song from which a title, I knew someone who had that title for a song that they'd written and it was a very meaningful song to them. And even though you can't copyright a title, I thought, oh, you know, I think that's the direction we should take this song, but I think we need to cut that person in so that they don't feel mm. slighted. And so we did. And so Love we that. said, hey, we want to, we're going to use this title, which is your title from this other song that has nothing to do with this song. There will be no, no similarity to this song. There'll be two separate works. And actually they have two t different titles. Now they have, they have a different title, but because I had knowledge of the fact that you had written this song, we will, uh, we just feel like we just need to give you something. So we gave him 15%. And, uh, but sometimes it's also that top line style, like in LA. So top line writing, you probably know what that is. It's like when someone sends a track and then you put the melody and the lyric on top of the track. So the track already exists. They call it top line writing. It's like, it's a LA, like a lot of pop music. That's what people do. So, well, what, what could have happened was that track was the, the track was written by two people. So it's already two people on that. And then it gets sent to you and then you can add a lyric and a melody. And then they might send it off to the artist who then might take what you've done and add yet another aspect of, you know, change it up, add their own lyrics. And so at that point, you may have the, the fundamental, you know, track guys, you're like, well, we get 50. So, so whatever you guys want to do. And then the artist may say, well, I want 25, you want 25 or it's so different based on every scenario. But yeah, there are times when, like, for instance, I, there was a song that I wrote, like I wrote it with a producer and an artist who's a very well-known artist. And um, and then that that artist, when she went to record the song, her producer added a couple little things. And she's like, I think we should cut him in. And we're like, of course. And so he got 15 percent, you know, and so so. It, it is like a, a case by case. You, I mean, I think people, I, I, once the song is mostly done, if you add a little something, like I had a song that would, that, um, that I produced for point of grace. Um, and it, the song was written, but I changed it and I added a pre-chorus and I added a post-chorus and, you know, I added on, in these hooks mm -hmm. and I was like, Hey, I didn't get invited into this ride, so I'm not going to ask for anything, but it feels like it needs it based on what's happened. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the the writers, the, the other writers were friends of mine and they were so sweet. And they called and said, okay, you're taking 20%. Don't even, don't even say anything. You're just taking it. Okay. And I, so I was like, way to do okay. business. <laughs> yeah. You just want to, you just want to just do what's right by people. Yeah. But how is that kept, kept track of? Is that like an ASCAP thing or BMI or how does, how does all that work? And the publishers, so when you turn in at the end of a song, you turn in the song. So I'll turn in my song to my publisher and they'll say, okay, what are the splits on this? And then you say, and then if there's an addendum to those splits and that just gets updated with the publisher and then the publisher is the one who registers it to ASCAP, BMI or CSAP. Yeah. Yeah. So that happens in, that happens before it gets to ASCAP. If you don't have, if you don't have a publisher, then you do that. And then when you upload that to ASCAP or BMI, then you verify all of the publishing information from the co-writers. And then you agree on the splits. And, you know, it's like an email, like, hey, is everybody cool with a third yeah. or, you know, whatever, and uh, or 50-50. And so, because technically a copyright is a lyric and a melody. Hmm. That's what it is. It's really not the chords. It's the, it's it's the lyric and the melody. That's what can be copywritten because so many chords are recycled. You know, it's same right. chords. Right. And obviously we know about all sorts of court cases where people are like, yeah. you know, that's, that's my, that's my melody. That's, you know, and, but there's also a rule about how many notes in a melody before you've stolen something. And it's, and sometimes you have people in, in the legal system who are not musicians who are deciding these kinds of things. And, that's right. I'm sure it gets gets very hairy. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know it. I want to respect your time. I feel like I could talk to you forever because <laughs> so many questions. I'm just about the book, but about what you do and, and music and the music industry. And I've been such a massive music fan for decades. And again, have I, I mean, I was a huge Christian music fan from the time I was a kid, you know, back in the mm. mid 80s. So I followed all this stuff for so long and just to get to talk to somebody like yourself is a real honor. Oh man. Well, I'm, I'm honored to talk to you. So where can people find out more about your book? Where can they find all of your music? Of course we'll Mm -hmm. have links in the show notes, but I always like to ask at the end, just so I can have a clear idea of here's where to go to find out about Cindy's book, music and all the things that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I, well, I will say that uh, it's pu- the book is published by Tyndale House. And so my website, if they go to my website, which is cindymorganmusic.com, then they can see all of the different links where they could buy the book. Right now, you can pre-order the book um, and you can pre-order it. And there's some good deals on the pre-order right now. Uh, but you can find it at Amazon. You can Tyndale House. You can find it at Amazon. Um, christianbooks.com um, like really anywhere books are sold you'll be able to buy it online or or hopefully in physical copy and um, and then um, uh, I was going to tell you that I couldn't not add something musical to this process and so I did a um, soundtrack for the novel and it's called The Sounds of Jubilee and so what I did was I asked all my heroes, my musical heroes, to write songs with me 
based on the char- character from the perspective of characters in the book. So Tom Douglas is is the voice of John Mockingbird. So he so we kind of are doing duets, but he is doing the voice of John Mockingbird. We wrote a song um, called Wings. Um, and oh my goodness, he is, um, is just such a, so brilliant. If you haven't seen um, his documentary called Love Tom, hmm. uh, it was on, uh, it was on Peacock, um, but Love Tom. And it's just this incredible documentary about all of the songs he's written in the music industry, but it's, it's presented in such a, an artful way. Wow. He's so amazing. So he did a song, Tommy Sims, who is just such an icon in the, in the, in the liner notes of music is written. He's played and produced and performed with just some of the biggest stars, Stevie Wonder, um, Bruce Springsteen, um, my goodness, uh, just so he's just such an incredible writer and musician and producer, an artist in his own right. So he wrote a song. We wrote a song um, that really he was the lead writer on that song without a doubt. But we wrote a spiritual in the style of Robert Johnson, and then Wayne and I wrote a duet together. Um, with the protagonist and the love interest. And uh, anyway, it's just so fun. So, yeah, so they allowed me to kind of create a musical landscape for the novel. And so there are all these moments of music, instrumental within the book itself, that come in and come out and like important moments. And, And all that music is drawn from the soundtrack. And then we have two songs at the end and a, um, and an, a, an interview segment from The Slow Work, which is a Sandra McCracken's podcast. Um, we have, you know, a bit of an interview at the end of that and, and a couple of bonus songs from the soundtrack. So that will be, you know, wherever you get your, your audio books, if it's Audible or, or wherever, there's going to be an enhanced audio book attached to this. I cannot wait to listen to that. That is that sounds so cool for a whole bunch of different reasons. I just love yeah, that. Yeah, well, it was fun doing it. It was it was really fun to kind of, you know, find those little moments where it's like, oh, like if there were music right here, I'll let it be, you know. So <laughs> you never know. You may have a you may have a brand new career as an enhanced audiobook producer. That could well, be a I thing. Would, that would be fun. I would love it. That so, could totally um, be a thing. I could absolutely see that. Yeah, well, thank you, man. This has been a blast. Thanks for taking time to do this. Hey, what a great conversation. We never talked about your book as much as I wanted to. Can I ask you a question about your book before of course. We, we say goodbye? Of course. Um, so do you feel like the Elvis novel or the Elvis movie did a good job in terms of what you know from you know your research about the faith of Elvis. What do you think? Boy, that's a really great question. Um, I've actually talked to Billy Stanley, uh, of course, Elvis's stepbrother, quite a bit about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. And his perspective basically is that the movie has, a, of course, a lot of inaccuracies, as any movie does based on somebody's life. And it really presented kind of an Elvis who was kind of depressed, uh, had a lot of problems, which, of course, Elvis did have. You know, there were a lot of a lot of things he worked through in his life. 
But the, the bottom line is, and I think this is such a cool perspective, is that Billy has expressed being really thankful that the movie helped bring about awareness of Elvis, especially the younger generations. And that the music was so well done and Austin Butler did such an incredible job. Mm, Elvis. Yeah. And I think that's such a great perspective because you can pick apart any movie based on somebody's life, but just the fact that it did so well in theaters and it was up for some Oscars, of course, it unfortunately didn't win any that I should have. It, it should have. That's have. definitely should have. But yeah, I, I think it's great that it, it made people a lot, made a lot of people way more aware of Elvis and who he was well, in his contributions. And it was a fun movie. It was very kinetic, very energetic. What about great. what what about Par- Colonel Parker? Oh my goodness. It was I don't know what was going on with the accent with that. It was a little weird. But because he was Dutch? Was he Dutch? I don't know what he was exactly. He wasn't from the United States, I don't believe. Um the I accent they were saying I couldn't he really was quite Dutch. replace it. Well, okay. So the reason I kind of glommed onto it is because my ex-husband is his he's Dutch. And so his whole family, okay. they were Dutch immigrants. And so oh. his accent was spot on. Wow. Really? That Dutch accent was spot on. I'm glad yes. you said that. I had no idea. Yeah, because I yeah, I mean I, I was like, oh okay, he's he's Dutch. He like he fled from Holland. So yeah, I mean, I think in it, it said that somewhere in the in the liner notes about, or like I read something about him being Dutch. And uh, so I thought that was fascinating. But anyway, I, I thought he did a great job. And I think what I loved about it was you see, and I don't know if this is true based on what you know from your research, but I thought, man, he just, that whole thing about that he was in a prison, he felt trapped and he didn't know no. how to get out of it. And his dad, oh my goodness, you know, and his dad didn't know how to help him either. You know, he didn't know, he, he they, they were sweet. To me, it's like, were these just sweet people that just got conned by the masterful yeah. con artist? He was very good. Colonel, the Colonel was very, very good at what he did. And he really, he ripped off Elvis big time. You know, that that's <sighs> my perspective and understanding. But at the same time, I think that what most of us, you know, in 2023, sometimes we forget that there was nobody before Elvis who did what he did. He totally invented mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. idea of a music superstar who was also yeah. in movies, who was also on television, who uh, was doing all these incredible things, who was doing a residency in Vegas. There wasn't anybody like him. So he was the first. And I mean, he, and I mean, uh, I guess that I know there were other creatives who were helping in that process, but, um, but, uh, but I will say, I mean, even that early scene uh, in the carnival where he's making a spectacle, uh, like Colonel, Colonel Parker just knew how to make it a thing, I guess. And yeah, my goodness, but he put um, together a show. Oh my! Elvis goodness. would not have had a career without Colonel Parker. Yeah, at least not the career that he did. So it's kind of a there's a there's a good side and a bad side to it. Of course, probably like like a lot of manager artist relationships or like any kind of partnership. Well, yeah, and it's true. You see artists that are huge, and then they leave management, and they never find good management again, and they kind of disappear. Yeah. So management is key there's no question really really and critical it's a tough tough job but anyway so well i um but i, I do think 
that after watching that movie and, and being a big fan of that movie, listening to your book, I thought, oh, this makes me feel so much better because his heart was in the right place. Yeah. He wanted to do the, and I think, you know, it seems like, you know, based on what I've read in your book, he wanted to take care of his family and mm -hmm. he wanted to take care of everybody. And he, and that weight, that pressure to do that maybe caused him to make decisions for himself that weren't very good. Yeah, because at some point you have the basically the Elvis machine going. I mean, you've got all these people you're supporting who are on the payroll. You have this lifestyle you have to keep up because you are who you are. Yeah. People expect that. And you have this you have this massive mechanism you have to keep going and you can't yeah. stop. Yeah. And um, yeah, mm -hmm. this this was this for me was more than a kind of a typical ghostwriting project. This very much was a book that impacted me personally. Mm -hmm. It really did. Yeah, yeah. I came away with, away with a much greater love for Elvis, and yeah, I hope I get to go back into Elvis World sometime because yeah, um, it was such a wonderful place to be. And Billy, I could not ask for a wonderful, a more wonderful collaborator. Truly. Well, you know, I was thinking when I was when I was uh, reading your book that I thought, oh, I'd love to include Elvis in a novel. I had to go yeah. get for research. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a cool novel? I mean, I have, know have there, it would. Have there been so novels cool. written about Elvis? Maybe there have. I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure. But, you know, even even a little cameo could be cool. Hey, I was going to show you that I just got this in. The hardback is coming in a couple of days, but I just got, I got my first copy. Wow. Congrats. And, uh, so sweet. And uh, yeah, but so, but I wanted to tell you that they, Tyndale did such a sweet job. They sent me this like super sweet um, package in a box, and they they sent this um, this little weather vane, you know, oh, with the little rooster cool. at the top, you know, because you've got the rooster at the top of the yep. of the novel, kind of that's that's like that's that's a nod to Rojo. But but anyway, they sent me this bookmark, and for your like for your fan for your writers that are probably follow your podcast. Mm -hmm. I thought this was such a great bookmark that they put in the book. And it says, uh, a book too can be a star, a living fire to lighten the darkness, leading out into the expanding universe. Madeline Lingle. Isn't that great? Wow, that's beautiful. I know. Yeah, so, beautiful. yeah, yeah. Good words. Good wow. words. So the book is coming out in hardback and paperback or just hardback? As far as the print, back and paperback, and oh. okay, wow, that's uh -huh. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, you got to get that. <laughs> you got to have the cheaper option. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I'm excited they're doing a hardback. That's really cool. I didn't expect that, but, um, but yeah, but I'm glad that there's the the less expensive option. Well, I can't wait to go to. Uh, I can't wait to be the first person to go into my local Barnes and Noble oh. and see it there in the shelf. So sweet. So it comes out in is it April 17th, April 18th, 18th. Okay. I was wondering. April 18th. Yeah. And I will say, so if, if folks want to kind of come, come see me on social media on Instagram or Facebook, I mean, Instagram is probably going to be my favorite mode to, for communicating, but we're going to do like some fun giveaways and we're going to, we're probably going to do a book club on face Facebook. Oh, awesome. Um, so anyway, you can look out for that. I think, I think my, 
my social media handle is Cindy Morgan Music as well. It's the same okay. as the website. Yep. Okay. I'll put all that in the show. All right. Wonderful. Thank you again for taking time to do this. I know Thank you have a lot going on and they've got you really busy doing all these interviews. So, well, I enjoyed this. I could have talked to you all day. It was, we'll have to do part two. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I would be completely honored. I yeah, really would. We should do it. We should do it. That would be a blast. Well, thank you again. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Kent. All right. Well, you have a great day and thank you for the interview. I enjoyed it so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed doing it. Honestly, this was a massive honor for me to be able to talk to Cindy because I've been listening to her music literally since I was in college and I started college in 1992. So we're talking like a 30 year journey from being introduced to Cindy's music to having the opportunity to interview her here on the podcast. Again, this is one of the reasons why I do a podcast, not just to be able to talk to people and have these cool conversations, but to be able to share this with you in the process. Now, I do have a small favor to ask you, but this is not a one-way street favor. This is a two-way street favor. I get, actually, it's three-way because Cindy gets blessed, I get blessed, and you get blessed too. So the favor is I would love for you to go to Amazon and purchase Cindy's brand new novel, The Year of Jubilee. That is my favorite. Now, secondary favor is make sure to go to her website, check out all the cool stuff she's doing at cindymorganmusic.com. But the main favor is go buy her book because it is really, really good. Now, let me just take kind of a side note to be, let me take just a second to be really honest with you. I don't read a lot of fiction. Um, and when the publisher sent me a copy of Cindy's book, I was like, well, of course I'm going to read this because she's going to be on my show. And, you know, a lot of times whenever I had guests on the show and, and I read their books, particularly if it's fiction, because I don't read a lot of fiction, it's not something that I get super, super excited about. Of course, I want to support my guests and I want to support what they're doing and, and all that. But here's what was so interesting in this process. Um, I started reading her book just kind of as an exercise in preparing for this podcast. But what I found was that I was really, really drawn into it, even from like the first few pages. In fact, I think I mentioned this to her either in our podcast conversation or just in the kind of the, the conversation we had before we hit record on the interview, is that there, was, there were a couple of things in the first few pages of the book that took me way back to grade school and brought up things in my memory that I had not thought about since I was a kid. Her writing is really powerful. The storytelling is amazing. And it doesn't really matter if you're not really a fiction reader or if you are a fiction reader. This book is really powerful. It's really, really good. So please do me a favor by going to Amazon and grabbing this book. I don't get any royalties from this. So this is not like a kickback kind of a thing. She's not a podcast sponsor. and She's not asked me to do this. I'm, uh, I'm mentioning this because I think you're really, really going to enjoy the book. It's going to give you a breath of fresh air in your creative life, and it's going to take you on a storytelling journey that's unexpected, that's emotional, and I think you're really, really going to like. So please do me that favor and consider buying her book, also because I want to support other authors and because those sales within the first few weeks of release are really, really critical. So make sure and do that. Again, there's a link in the show notes uh, to do that. I think you're going to enjoy the book, and I would love to know what you thought of it. And then after you read it, post a review on Amazon. Those are really, really important as well. Okay, this has probably been a really long outro here, but nevertheless, I wanted to encourage you to do that. As always, thank you so much for listening. I don't take your time and your attention for granted. It is an honor to have you with me on this podcasting journey. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.